Good evening. Welcome to the Lakatos Lectures, celebrating winners of both the 2015 and 2016 awards today. I'm Hasak Chang from the University of Cambridge. It is a great pleasure uh, for me to chair these proceedings today in my capacity as the interim chair of the Lakatos Award Management Committee. When I say interim chair, I, what I mean is I'm looking after things in the transition period um, coming from many years of the award being managed by Professor John Warren of the LSE um, and going over to Professor Roman Frigg, also of the LSE. We certainly owe John great thanks for his many years of service. I'll try to say a few words about that during the reception after these um, lectures. Roman Frigg sends his sincere apologies. is in China, not with Trump, but uh, <laughs> doing something else great in Shanghai. Um, he's very sorry he couldn't be here. And um, I also want to just briefly thank for now Tom Henriksen, who has been looking after all kinds of arrangements as the secretary of the management committee. Uh, so this part of the evening is for the lectures by the two winners in which they will present highlights of their award-winning books. Uh, we will plan to run this part of the proceedings for about 90 minutes. So it will be a 35-minute lecture by each prize winner, 10 minutes or so of question and answers, um, and then we'll move on to the reception at which the actual Lakatos medal will be given to each winner. And uh, there'll be drinks and nibbles for everybody. So you're all very welcome to join the reception. The Lakatos Award is certainly one of the most significant things that we have in the field of philosophy of science. For many years, it was the only serious prize that we had in the field. Now there are some others, but I think it would still be well agreed that it is the most significant prize that the field of philosophy of science bestows upon individual authors. It is given to an outstanding contribution to the philosophy of science, widely interpreted, in the form of a book published in English, and this is a wonderful occasion, especially with the lectures. Every year when our field looks at itself, identifies the best, and celebrates it. So uh, I'm very, very pleased to welcome two of the most recent winners today and would first of all like to congratulate them both on their great achievements. Now, um, we have a limited amount of time, so let me now mostly shut up. Uh, but I do want to introduce the winners and their books briefly. Um, the winner of the 2015 award is Dr. Thomas Prado, um, who is a senior investigator at CNRS in, Paris, uh, in Bordeaux in France at the Immunology Unit 
and he's also uh, at the University of Bordeaux. He is a coordinator, the main coordinator of the Institute for Philosophy in Biology and Medicine, um, through which he's building a very impressive international network of people working at the interface of biomedicine and philosophy. Previously, he taught um, at the University of Paris, Sorbonne. Uh, he has too many degrees for me to even mention all of them. So I'll just mention that in 2007, he had received his doctorate from the University of Paris, Paris 1, Panthéon-Sorbonne, uh, at the um, renowned Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology there, um, with the thesis which was ultimately developed into this prize-winning book. About the book, I just want to quote from the anonymous reviewers who uh, decisively ruled in his favor for the 2015 award. The selectors, as we call them, say that Dr. Prader's book is a profound examination of the ways in which our current understanding of the immune system can shed light on the metaphysical questions of identity and selfhood. It is notable in its impressive grasp of a wide range of literature, both on the history and the current theory of immunology, engaging with the real cutting-edge science and demonstrating a detailed understanding of the relevant science and scientific practices. Its accessible and original discussion makes a distinctive and important contribution to the expansion of the scope of philosophy of biology and moreover should be of considerable interest well beyond the philosophy of the biomedical sciences. So I think we all have a lot to look forward to. Thomas, the stage is yours. Could we have the slides of Dr. Prader? I wouldn't be able to do the other one. That's perfect. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, Azak, and thank you very much for the Lakatosh Award. Uh, it came as an incredible surprise, incredible honor uh, to me and thank you very much for being here uh, tonight. I'm going to talk about philosophy in science. I'm gonna explain what I mean by this uh, phrase and revisiting immunology and biological individuality. So in my research in the last 15 years or so, I've been interested in two main problems. One is what is an individual in the living world and the second is, how does philosophy of science relate to science? And regarding these two problems, I have had two dissatisfactions, and I would like to make two claims. With regard to the first problem, what is an individual in the living world, the main answer given in the field has been that evolution tells us what a biological individual is. And my claim has been that immunology was indispensable to understand biological individuality. Regarding the second problem, how does philosophy of science relate to science, 
I observed that philosophy of science is mainly a discourse on science. And against that view, or in addition to that view, I would like to suggest that philosophy of science would benefit from what I call an interventionist attitude towards science. Namely, I think that philosophers of science can do science. They can intervene on science and do science themselves. And I would like to explain that today. So in the first part of my talk, I would try to explain what I, why I think that philosophy of biology must become much more inclusive than it has been. In the second part, I would try to defend the view that anyone interested in biological individuality should take into account immunology. In the third part, I would try to explain why the work I've been doing tries to constitute a contribution to different levels in philosophy that I will describe in details. And in the last part, the one um, I like most today, uh, I will talk about the virtues of philosophy in science. And this is a very general message, quite independent from immunology as such. This is more a description of what I see as an important possibility for philosophy of science to become a philosophy in science, namely an interventionist philosophy of science. So I start with the need for a more inclusive philosophy of biology. I recently did a study on biology and philosophy. Biology and philosophy is often perceived by the community as a good representative of the field of philosophy of biology, even though it's certainly not the only journal of philosophy of biology. And this study followed a study made by Jean Gaillon. And together, we have studied 30 years of biology and philosophy since the creation of the journal in 1986 to 2015. And I made two main observations. Uh, they won't surprise you, uh, but I made two main observations. First, one biological field overtly dominates philosophy of biology, and this field is evolution. Second, philosophy of biology in the last 20 years or so has been quite insensitive to the changes that happened, that occurred in biology. This is the fields of the biological fields as they are represented in biology and philosophy in the most recent period, so from 2003 to 2015. I don't know if you can see well, but here you can observe that 62% of the papers published in biology and philosophy during this period are about evolution. Other fields are represented. Often there is much evolution in the, all the other fields here, but evolution per se is here, 62%. What I did is to study exactly during the same period the distribution of biological topics in a major scientific journal, namely the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science of America. And here you can see that among the papers published in PNAS in the same period, 5% of the paper are about evolution. And you can see that they are 12% in biochemistry, 9% by biophysics, 8% about cell biology, 7% about immunology. So the very simple observation is that for a field which, like philosophy of biology, pretends to be very close to the science, we can observe that the representation of biological domains in PNAS and biology and philosophy during this period are extremely different. Regarding evolution, there is what I call the 5%, 60% rule, so around 5% of the papers in PNAS and 62% in biology and philosophy. So I think that over the years, we have built a wonderful philosophy of biology, one of the most active fields in philosophy of science. But this field is provincial. This field has been interested mainly in one biological field. And 
uh, of course, I have absolutely no problem with the philosophy of evolution. I think it's absolutely crucial to continue this domain. What I'm just saying is that we absolutely need to complement philosophy of evolution with other approaches in philosophy about different biological fields. So philosophy of biology has focused mainly on evolution, and I think that some other areas are just as scientifically and philosophically interesting. I think it would be a mistake to say that it is perfectly understandable that evolution dominates philosophy of biology just because it's more interesting, just because it's more philosophically interesting. I think this is a major mistake. If you have a look at uh, oncology, cancerology, virology, for example, uh, um, studies on CRISPR-Cas, super interesting studies, scientifically interesting, philosophically interesting. I think that another domain that is scientifically very interesting and extremely dynamic at the moment is immunology. And what I did is my, in my research, my research sorry, is to take the example of immunology as one of these fields that were, that were both scientifically and philosophically interesting. So why philosophy of immunology? First, as I just said, immunology is clearly one of the most dynamic fields in biology today. If you open up an issue of nature or science, you will see immunology. Maybe one-third of the paper related to biology are directly about immunology. It is a very molecular field, but at the same time, this is extremely, it's, it's a field which is extremely conceptual and theoretical. Another interesting aspect is the fact that immunology is clearly at the interface between biology and medicine. And one thing that I think is very important is the fact that in a period where philosophy of biology and philosophy of medicine are quite separated very often, I think that immunology can constitute a very interesting bridge between these two domains. Immunology is about grafts, cancer, autoimmune diseases, infectious disease, interactions between host and infectious agents, and to that extent it's related to evolution, about ecology and ecoimmunology, about neuroimmunology, so very uh, much tied with uh, the neurosciences. It tells many things about individuality, as I will explain in a minute. And it can also be related to metaphysical questions, as I've tried to uh, defend. But what is immunology, by the way? I think it's very difficult to define immunology. Most of the time, if you ask an immunologist what immunology is, you will get an answer that will look, looks like, that will look like the fact that immunology is the study of the defense of organisms against pathogens. This definition is too narrow, too limited, and all immunologists know that it's too limited. Immunology is also about grafts. Immunology is also about cancer. And we now know that the immune system is involved in a very important way in development, repair, or regulation of the body in general. So I think that defining and delineating immunology is absolutely crucial, but it's very difficult to do. And I think this is exactly one of the areas where philosophers can help to say what is immunology, what are the boundaries of immunology, where immunology will go in the future. So I now turn to my uh, claim that immunology is absolutely crucial to understanding biological individuality. The problem of biological individuality can, of course, be raised about humans. We are often interested in that problem. But in philosophy of biology, rightly so, I think, the problem has been raised about the living world in general. And taking into account the diversity of the living world is extremely important to raise this question of biological individuality that has been raised at least since the 19th century, in fact, more than that. The problem of biological individuality has two main aspects. One is about unity, the other is about persistence. One question is about what counts as one 
cohesive entity in the living world, one unified and cohesive entity in the living world. And the other is about persistence or sameness. And here the question is, how can we know that an entity remains the same through time, a living entity remains the same through time, even though we know that it changes all the time? So what does it mean to remain the same? What changes all, what, what changing all the time? Um, it's, these questions are extremely old. Um, Aristotle asked exactly these questions, and we can even say that the view that Aristotle had about primary substances, for example, are to a large extent an echo of his conception of biological individuals. Leibniz, of course, was also very interested in these questions of unity and persistence. In philosophy of biology, the problem of uh, biological individuality is clearly one of the most discussed. And the different accounts of biological individuality that have been suggested in philosophy of biology are all or almost all based on an evolutionary approach, as if biological individuals had to be, almost by definition, evolutionary individuals. So this is true for David Hall, Elliot Sauber, Peter Godfrey-Smith, Samuel Kasha, Ellen Clark, for example. And against that, I have suggested that what we needed was a pluralistic approach to biological individuality, in which evolution would be combined with immunology, the cognitive sciences, physiology, development, ecology, many other fields, maybe. These are very important ones, I think. And it's not just pluralism for pluralism. What I'm suggesting is that we need to understand biological individuals as some sort of nexus between different biological approaches. For example, we could claim that some entities are highly individualized, physiologically, immunologically, sorry, and evolutionarily, and that would be very strongly individualized biological individuals. So my point is that within this combination of domains, immunology can play a major role. Immunology has the word individuality everywhere in its writings, and if you have a look at immunology, at least since the end of the 19th century, you will see individuality, self, identity everywhere. The view of biological individuality that has been offered in immunology is mainly based on the self-non-self vocabulary and self-non-self theory. Basically, the self-non-self theory says that an organism will reject everything that is foreign to it and it will accept everything that comes from this organism itself. So it's an endogenous idea of biological individuality. Really, the point is that everything that comes from the inside will be tolerated, what comes from the outside will, will be rejected. The problem is that over the last 20 years or so, uh, many data have been accumulated showing that it's extremely problematic to keep these assertions uh, that uh, make up the self-non-self theory. We now know that every organism has many, many foreign entities that are actively tolerated by its immune system. And we also know that autoimmunity is everywhere to a certain degree in all organisms. Just think about, for example, the apoptosis of dying cells, which is absolutely a necessary uh, process in organisms. So what I've been trying to do in my research is to say, I want to keep this idea that immunology is absolutely crucial to understanding biological individuality. But at the same time, I don't want the self-non-self view. Again, remember, the self-non-self view is based on the idea of endogenicity. What comes from the inside is tolerated. What comes from the outside will be rejected. 
So I think the immunology is absolutely crucial to understand biological individuality, but not in the self, non-self framework that was the one of Burnett uh, in the 30s and until the, the, the end of the 60s. So this led me to the idea of an heterogeneous individuality and to develop this idea of a certain conception of biological individuality based on immunology, but that was different from the, self, from the one based on the self-non-self theory, what I had to do, I felt, was to develop a theory of how immune responses occur in an organism, a theory that would not be the self-non-self theory. So I needed to build some sort of new metaphysical view on the basis of another scientific view. So this is what I did with some immunologists, Edgardo Carosella in particular and Eric Vivier, and we did a series of suggestions that led to the continuity-discontinuity theory that we published in different uh, scientific papers. The idea at the heart of this theory is extremely simple. The idea is that immune systems have been selected through evolution, not for the capacity to detect and eliminate non-self, but for the capacity to detect rapid changes in organisms. And our suggestion is that when something changes very rapidly in an organism, whatever its origin may be, can come from the inside, can come from the outside, it doesn't matter. What matters is the rate of change. When something changes very rapidly, it's going to trigger an effector immune response. When something does not change or change very slowly, then it will induce an immunoregulatory response and lead to a tolerance. We have developed this model into different kinds of situations. Uh, that details the way the, the antigenic quantities uh, uh, influence the immune response you will get. And we have also developed a mathematical model of the discontinuity theory uh, in this paper. More recently, what we have suggested is that the discontinuity theory of immunity could unify four types of recognition mechanisms in immunology that hitherto had been considered as four different explanations, requiring four different explanations. What we say is that we can unify these different modes of recognition into this uh, continuity, discontinuity theory. So as you can see, I, the, the work I've been doing is uh, about theoretical immunology as much as about philosophy of immunology per se. So which conception of immunology-based biological individuality could I suggest on the basis of this theory? Very importantly, we have learned in the last 10 years or so that every organism is a complex ecosystem made of many biotic elements belonging to different species and even, in fact, to different kingdoms. Every organism has huge numbers of resident microbes, this is what we call often the microbiota, and the microbiota can, is about bacteria, but also fungi, and even more importantly, I think, about viruses. We will uh, learn much more about the virobiota uh, in the coming years. And this microbiota is located mainly in the gut, but also, in fact, located at all bodies' interfaces. Importantly, some of these microbes play a functional, sometimes even indispensable role in the organism, like digest digestion, development, metabolism, more surprisingly about immunity. And what was the main point for me was that in many cases, these members of the microbiota are perfectly perceived by the immune system, but they are not rejected by the immune system. <laughs> this idea that you will have functional roles for the microbiota and that the immune system will often tolerate these members of the microbiota is an idea that holds for the living in general. We now know that it is true 
for every animal where we have made investigations, and it's also true in plants. So the main idea is that every organism is indeed an ecosystem. But what I wanted to suggest on the basis of immunology is that we should understand that every organism is a very special ecosystem. It is indeed an ecosystem because of the diversity I just described, but it is a very special ecosystem, a strongly unified ecosystem. And I think that the immune system plays a decisive role in this unification of a plurality. I think this is what immune systems do. Immune systems do some sort of e pluribus unum. The immune system offers a principle of inclusion and exclusion. The immune system says, this is going to stick together. This is not going to stick together. This is going to be part of the organism. This is not going to be part of the organism. Remember that these, uh, this criterion is not based on the idea of the origin of the entity under consideration. I'm not talking about endogenicity. I'm not saying that things that come from the inside are tolerated, things that come from the outside are rejected. What I'm saying is that constantly the immune system sees stuff and will keep some elements that can perfectly be foreign but will become part of the organism, and it can perfectly reject things that come from the inside but it will cease to be part of the organism. The immune system is certainly not the sole individuating device in living things, but I've tried to argue that it was one of the most powerful devices. It is ubiquitous. You find it everywhere in nature, including in prokaryotes, in fact. You find it in bacteria, in archaea, for example. I think you also find it in viruses, but that's a small speculative claim. It's systemic in the sense that the immune system exerts a constant control over the whole body in any living thing. And it is selective. It is a filter, as I explained uh, one minute ago, because of this inclusion-exclusion mechanism. So I think that on the basis of immunology, we can offer a much more precise definition of physiological individuality. And at the same time, I think this leads to a redefinition of what an immune system is and does. Immunity is not only about defense. Immunity is also about constructing an organism, repairing an organism, regulating the organism. And in fact, your immune systems every day do much more construction and regulation than defense per se. So this is why I have suggested to see an organism as a physiological individual, that is, more precisely, as a functionally integrated whole. That's a very traditional uh, uh, you know, view inspired by Kant and many others, functionally integrated whole. Uh, the definition is made a little bit more precise by saying that it is made up of heterogeneous constituents that are locally interconnected by strong biochemical interactions. So these heterogeneous constituents can be the microbiota, for example, and these uh, biochemical interactions are under the control of systemic immune interactions. So this is to that extent that my definition of the physiological individual is immunological. I'm saying that the immune system constantly controls everything in the organism and will say this is going to continue to be part of the organism or not. Very importantly, I'm not starting with organisms as we see them. I'm not starting with the phenomenal organisms, the way we can uh, perceive the, the, the organisms. What I'm saying is that we can have a look at the, uh, the living world and ask the immune system to tell us what uh, will count as a physiological individual or an organism. And my, my test case here is Botrytis schlosseri, which is a colonial animal, and 
when we see about traditional theory, we have no idea if uh, that each zoid will count an, as an individual or the whole colony should count as an individual or both. And this has been a puzzling case for a very long time. And what I'm saying is that we should just ask the immune system. The immune system will tell you what the boundaries of this, this organism are. So you start with something about which you have no good intuition, then the immune system will tell you that when these two uh, colonies will grow, in some cases they will just fuse, in other cases they will reject one the other. And this is under the dependence of a histocompatibility system and an immune system. So what I'm saying is that you don't know where the individual is, the immune system tells you have a look at what's going on immunologically, and in that case, you will conclude that the immunological individual, and for me, the physiological individual, is the colony, because this is at this level that immune processes occur. Then I've tried to combine this view of physiological individuality with uh, an evolutionary individuality, and have suggested that arthropods were a great example of biological individuals that were both highly physiologically individualized and evolutionarily individualized. More generally, I think that what I just said is that the basis for combining different views about biological individuality uh, coming from immunology, coming from ecology, coming from evolution, etc. The kind of contribution I've tried to do is um, a multi-level contribution, and I will explain what I mean by that, and I will immediately say that my aim has been, as a philosopher of science, to try to contribute to general philosophy, philosophy of science, philosophy of biology, conceptual, theoretical biology, experimental biology, therapeutic application. <laughs> of course I failed. Of course it's a complete failure. But what I'm saying is that it was an aim for me, and it is it's still a very important aim for me, to believe that all these levels exist. We must be interested in the different interactions between these different levels. There's no hierarchy between them. And I think that philosophy, philosophy in science, as I will describe it in a, in a minute, should be an approach that tries to contribute to all these different levels. Again, it won't work, but it's worth trying. So in my case, I've tried to suggest the indispensability of immunity to understanding biological individuality as a contribution to philosophy of biology. Again, I don't know if it works. I'm just saying that this was what I wanted to do. In conceptual and theoretical biology, I've tried to suggest this continuity, this continuity theory of immunity, to suggest different redefinition of immunity as construction and repair. In experimental biology, I've worked on the kinetics of the immune response, on the role of the immune system in repair and the immune system in the tumor microenvironment. In terms of therapeutic application, I'm working a lot on the idea of modulating the immune system in repair-associated disorders and also in promoting different forms of what I call ecosystemic medicine, for example, fecal transplantation, if you're interested. Uh, in philosophy of science, I've tried to suggest this idea of an interventionist philosophy of science that I will describe in a minute. And in general philosophy, I've tried to think much more generally about individuality and the way we can define individuality on the basis of some interactions. Of course, the most difficult part for me has been to contribute to experiments. This is extremely difficult but I'm part of an, a lab which is a purely experimental lab, I mean almost purely experimental lab. We have four groups. One group is mine about conceptual approaches to immunology. For the rest, we just do experiments and therapeutic applications. So in my group right now, we're trying to investigate some of these questions, for example, immune promoted tumor genesis, uh, the, the importance of cell interactions in immune-mediated uh, tissue repair, or the different ways we can define immune memory in immunology. 
So this leads me to simply emphasize the fact that with the kind of work I just described, it's absolutely crucial for us, for my group, to publish as much in scientific journals as in philosophy journals. So if you have a look at what we published in the last year, uh, all the bold character uh, things are in uh, scientific journals, and uh, the non-bold character things are in philosophy journal, journals. It's absolutely crucial for us also to publish in philosophy journals, but I just want to emphasize the fact that for the kind of work we do, it's absolutely uh, decisive to do both. And this leads me directly to what I call the virtues of philosophy in science. I think it's fair to say that philosophy of science has been mainly, not only, but mainly a discourse about science, and often at a very general and abstract level, so about theories, models, causation, etc. I'm perfectly fine with that. Two approaches have been developed, more descriptive approach, prescriptive approaches, one thing that I find problematic, I'm not saying it's immediately correlated, I'm just saying that I find it very problematic when I talk with scientists, and I do that often, that most of them do not know what philosophy of science is, and when they do, most of the time, they don't find it useful. <laughs> so I'm just thinking that one way that could be useful to address this problem is to move from philosophy on science to philosophy in science. What is the major aim of philosophy in science? Well, the major aim is to produce science, to influence science. The work that will be done in philosophy in science will be evaluated, at least in part, uh, according to uh, scientific standards. It will be evaluated as scientific. And this is what I call interventionism, or an interventionist approach in philosophy of science. There are three key features, as I see them, uh, about philosophy in science. First. There must be an intervention in science. Second, this intervention must be recognized by some scientists, scientists not all scientists, of course, <laughs> as potentially fruitful for science. And third, it must be done in the short term. I'm not talking about something like one century after we rediscover <laughs> what a philosopher said and, 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 and consider it's, it's important and useful, which happens very often, you know, but this is not what I'm talking about. The means to realize that are, I, I think, several. I think... Having philosophers embedded in scientific labs can help a lot. This is what we're trying to do in Bordeaux. Of course, those philosophers involved in that kind of use must acquire a scientific knowledge. Very often, I think that what is also required, what is very important, is the construction of a common culture and a common language with the scientists. And the last point also is extremely important, which is the co-production of knowledge, the co-writing of papers in both science and philosophy journals. So I see these as possible means to realize this aim of producing science as philosophers in science. And of course, I'm uh, immediately emphasizing that I would never consider the possibility that or the, the usefulness of uh, the fact that all philosophers of science would do philosophy in science. Of course not. I'm just saying this, this is one possible approach that is worth uh, developing in the coming years. What kind of interventions uh, philosophers can do? Philosophers can contribute to concepts. They can contribute to conceptual clarification leading to novel scientific investigations. They can also give several critiques of scientific concepts. I think that can be extremely useful to the scientists. They can even suggest new concepts that can orient or reorient empirical research. They can also work on theories and models. They can identify problems or gaps in existing theories or models. They can suggest new theories. They can suggest the unification of existing theories. Philosophers are also 
sorts of specialists of generality, and I think that this is very useful. We are quite good at making bridges between different approaches or even different sciences. And very often, the biological fields are so specialized, and right, rightly so, that I think sometimes it's very helpful to say, oh, you're doing oncology. Maybe having a look at ecology could be useful to improve your uh, investigations in oncology. Philosophers can also contribute to experiments. They can suggest or even do themselves novel experiments. Typical philosophy and science questions include, what do you mean exactly by this concept? Are you aware that you will probably do different experiments depending on the meaning of a given scientific concept that you consider? Is this concept really scientifically fruitful or is it more like blinkers? What is the explicit or implicit theoretical and conceptual framework in which you conduct your research? Are you sure you have tested alternative views? Are you sure there are no contradictions in your framework? Do you feel the need to define your object of study and why? I've done a small study on developmental biology. We asked 50 major world-leading developmental biologists what was development and, did, and if they cared about it. And they didn't know and they didn't care. I think, <laughs> I think it's very important to think about that kind of questions. Maybe you're thinking right now there's nothing new in philosophy in science, and to some extent I think you're right. It's just old wine in a new bottle, just a name. Some philosophers and scientists have defended views that are extremely similar. House um, of Chang is in this room. You heard last year Carlo Rovelli, a physician that says that kind of things, and many people, some of them also in this room, are doing or promoting exactly the same thing. I have two replies. First. Putting a name on a phenomenon can help delineate and define it and act as an incentive. And second, I'm not saying that philosophy in science is new. What I'm saying is that it's super important and it's extremely rare. You can also think that philosophy in science is reminiscent of other categories. For example, philosophy of science in practice or complementary HBS. I think there are some important differences. Philosophy of science in practice is a strong move in recent philosophy of science. I think it's a very important move. But in most cases, it remains a description of science, not a contribution to science. There are some exceptions, but in general, I think this is fair to say that it's been more a description of science. What is clearly the most interesting approach with regard to what I'm trying to promote, philosophy in science, is what Hazuk Chang has called complementary science in different publications, including in these two books, saying that HPS could be a continuation of science by other means. But for Hazuk Chang, complementary science is about what scientists neglect. Philosophy in science, as I see it, is about what some scientists see that they should not neglect. So it's within the science, often at the boundaries of the science. It's not really the heart of the science of the moment. It's at the boundaries of the science. But some scientists see that they should not neglect these questions. So it corresponds more to what Hazuk Chang calls the participatory mode uh, of uh, uh, HPS. And this is where, of course, the co-writing with scientists and publishing in scientific journals become extremely important because I think this is really by doing this that we can really find together what are the issues that some scientists think that they should not neglect. Is that an elitist approach to science? Yes. Yes, at least in part, because my experience uh, is that it's often the most distinguished and clever scientists in their field who will have this kind of questions about what the field is, where the field is going, and how can we influence this uh, future of the field.
Kuhn said that philosophers are needed in period of crisis only, or almost only. I think that, in fact, philosophers are very important for those who rethink their discipline. It just happens that during crisis, many scientists realize that they need to rethink their discipline. But I think in normal science, you can also have some people who will think that they must rethink their discipline and that maybe philosophers could help. So I see philosophy in science more at the interface of philosophy of science and science, a little bit in between doing both. And I see complementary science as, of course, a part of philosophy uh, of science. Uh, there is some overlap with philosophy in science, but most of the time when complementary science is about topics neglected by scientists, it is not in science in the same way that philosophy in science is. Of course, successes would be rare. Uh, the aim is to have a recognized contribution to science, most of the time in collaboration with scientists and in scientific journal. And it's also, as I said before, uh, philosophy in science tries also to make a contribution that is not only to science, but also to uh, philosophy of science and even philosophy in general. Of course, this is very difficult. There will be more failures than successes, but I think it is worth trying. It's exactly what we're trying to do in Bordeaux. Um, it's just, just a start. Uh, we are using these four guiding principles of interventionism, embedded philosophers, co-writing of papers, and common reading groups in this Institute for Philosophy in Biology and Medicine. I conclude by saying that immunology is, I think, crucial to define biological individuality. I'm not saying this is the only way. I'm saying this is a crucial way. Organisms can be understood as strongly unified ecosystems under the control of an immune system. Philosophers, I think, can directly contribute to science, often, or I would say always, in collaboration with scientists. Philosophy in science, based on interventionism, should become a major approach in philosophy of science. And if I'm right, then a real pivotal challenge will be the training of philosophers, scientists in the future, if we really want to do this kind of intervention in science. With this, I want to thank my group in Bordeaux, here, also, John Dupre, Gérard Hébert, Adam Ferner, Jean Gaillon, Scott Gibbock, Peter Goffrey-Smith, Alexandre Gué, Philippe Hunman, Dick Lewinton, Jean-François Moreau, Margaret Maffonay, Elliot Sober, Eric Vivier, with whom I have interactions all the time, and also the ERC for funding. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Thomas. If you stay there, we have about 10 minutes for questions. There are roving microphones. Thank you very much for your talk. I very much enjoyed it. So I have a number of questions and possible comments that I hope we'll be able to. Yeah, we'll be able to discuss after. But my main, I'm not entirely bent on saying concern. My main issue. That's even worse. The main thing uh, I was thinking about is, um, so you suggest a form of pluralism about biological individuality and which can be reached at via different routes, phys uh, physiological development on, or evolutionary, and you perceive that <coughs> most uh, philosophers of biology who have worked on this problem have approached it from an evolutionary perspective. And you are somewhat critical of that, if I'm correct. Um, so my issue is that shouldn't, shouldn't it be like that since uh, at least one uh, reason would be since uh, 
evolution is the only way we can explain how individuals are there in the first place. And is this not a, uh, asking the question of whether individuals are mainly, uh, should be defined in evolutionary terms or, for example, uh, immunological terms, is this not a question, uh, a distinction between a how, sorry, why and how question? So I think this is a very important aspect to think in terms of history. And from that point of view, of course, evolution has much to say about uh, uh, the first individual, so to speak, and then major transitions. And this has been, as you know, a major topic in philosophy of biology. But even there, I've been, for example, very interested in the neglect of immunological process in the origins of life, in the first individuals. What I'm saying is that you cannot have a living entity without an immune system. It doesn't exist. Because my view is that immunity is about controlling things that adhere together. They, just, they, are stick, they stick together. They need an immune system to make that stick together for longer. So that's just one example of something I'm saying to the evolutionists and philosophers of biology who focused on evolution. It's, what you do is great, but if you add questions about immunology, development, your perspective will be even richer. That's, that's, that's the only point. I've logged two questions, first of all. Uh, let's go to Professor List and then down here, gentlemen. Yeah, this is just a very uh, brief comment on your general programmatic message to do more philosophy in science. Um, since we're here at the LSE uh, Social Science uh, Institution, um, I would just like to echo your message also from the perspective of the social sciences. So just as uh, the natural sciences can benefit from doing more philosophy in science, so I believe the social sciences as well as economics can benefit from doing more philosophy within those uh, disciplines. And that's why I would encourage you to uh, push this kind of research program of philosophy of, uh, in science uh, even beyond the boundaries of the natural sciences. Couldn't agree more, yeah. Well, <laughs> we're going to push it on to Brian. <laughs> Next question, please. Uh, no, it's the gentleman down here. Yeah. Um, Thank you. I guess, um, is that on? Yeah. Um, I guess not only concepts, but also names can be very powerful in kind of channeling research. And from what you said, in a way, the immune system is a bit of a misnomer, or at least it is kind of like a bit of a too narrow name. So I w I'm wondering um, if you would rename the system, how would you name it? <laughs> so in fact, I think one good aspect is that immune, of course, has a long history, uh, but it's quite flexible. I can, I can say that the immune system is about repair, without creating the impression that I'm saying you know, something completely crazy, because immune has some flexibility. That being said, you're right, I've been thinking a lot about that, uh, especially because I'm very interested in neuroendocrino-immune interactions, which you know, really raise a very important question about how you delineate systems um, in addition to what I presented. So what I present is that immunity is about much more than defense. And you could still keep the term immunity, but make it richer on the basis of repair, regulation, etc. But in addition to that, you have to take into account something you're alluding to, which is the fact that even delineating the immune system, saying that something is part of the immune system and only part of the immune system is extremely problematic. One example, microglia. Microglia are macrophages in the brain. 
until 10 years, nobody would call them macrophages. They are just macrophages. They are just you know, immune cells in the brain. But because people had said that we had no immune system in the brain, one of these crazy ideas that just keep on and on for 30 years, and in, people would not call that macrophages, but they are. So in that case, are you talking about the nervous system? Are you talking about the immune system? Both, in fact. And I think this is very important to maybe keep those terms, but then see how they overlap, how they connect. And from that point of view, I think re delineating systems is one of the main things that biology and medicine will have to do in the coming years. I'm afraid we have only time for one more question. I'm going to give it to Professor Bovens. So, so I'm, I'm wondering about philosophy in science, right? I mean, now suppose that I play devil's advocate here and I say, well, look, can't the scientists just do all that work anyway? I mean, so you have to say in some way, no, no, when the philosopher comes in, and it doesn't matter you know, whether they have a PhD in philosophy, that doesn't matter, right? But when somebody philosophically inclined comes in, then they make a particular kind of contribution that goes over and above what the empirical scientist does. So what's the nature of that contribution? Do you see it methodologically? Do you see it being defined by content? Or how do you see it? So many aspects. So I think among the different aspects or items that I mentioned, I think philosophers are pretty good at doing that and much more than most scientists. So if scientists do some philosophy and acquire that methods or content, this is perfectly fine, and some do, and, but also the other way around. So for example, when thinking about reconceptualization or thinking about making bridges between different disciplines or thinking about the history, contextualization of a concept, uh, and, and of a term. I think we are, we are trained to do that in a way that is extremely useful to the science. And my experience, of course people in my lab are very nice, but still, they say that we are useful and I think we are to some extent a little bit useful to their research because I took the example of immune memory, for example, a term that is everywhere. Vaccination is about immune memory. In my lab, we're working on immune memory and by being philosophers interested in you know, the very notion of memory, what it means, where it comes from, the different meanings it can have, I think the way we are trained is extremely helpful for the scientists, at least in some cases. So I think we do have some added value as philosophers. Thank you. Thank you. Right, now it's my pleasure to introduce the winner of the 2016 Lactose Award, Brian Epstein. Professor Epstein teaches at Tufts University in Massachusetts, where he's Associate Professor of Philosophy. And his research focuses mainly on two topics, uh, for, first and foremost, I think, uh, which is the issues of reference and social ontology. And these are the key topics in his award-winning book, which we will be hearing about very soon. Um, his general interests are very, very diverse and broad. Philosophy of social science, metaphysics, philosophy of language, actually philosophy of economics in particular is an important interest, as is the philosophy of music. Now, Professor Epstein received his PhD in philosophy from Stanford University. Um, where he tells me he was partly taught by John Dupre. Uh, we'll come back to that later. 
received his uh, master's degree, MST, in philosophy at Oxford, um, before which he did a bachelor's degree in philosophy at Princeton. Um, before Tuft, uh, he taught for a time at Virginia Tech, and as he tells you at the beginning, very beginning of his book, um, after the bachelor's degree, he worked in business industry uh, as a consultant. Very, very interesting opening about that in the book. I won't mention the duck photography interest that uh, you can ask him about later. Uh, to his Lactose Prize winning book, um, again, these anonymous selectors praised it as an extremely serious and significant book, the best available treatment of the metaphysics of the social world. It provokes an outstandingly elegant illustration of why metaphysical foundations really matter to the practice of science and opens the door to a more productive philosophy of social science than has hitherto been available. The arguments are careful and rigorous with the right mixture of theories and examples, arriving at quite original conclusions. The book is praised as beautiful and engaging, original and ambitious, exemplary in its clarity, and extremely enjoyable to read. So we look forward to an extremely enjoyable lecture as well, Brian. Well, I agree with all of that. Uh, that's a bit of a high bar. Um, but uh, it's, this is truly uh, an unexpected and great honor uh, and, uh, and a wonderful occasion. I'd like to, uh, to really thank Hasok and uh, the committee and the selectors. Um, also, thank you to Tom uh, Hendrickson for, uh, for doing all the arrangements. And uh, I especially appreciate the opportunity to come out here uh, and meet with uh, some, uh, some of my former students, uh, some of my oldest friends, uh, some new friends, uh, and um, it kind of gives me an excuse to come out and see the city as well. Unfortunately, my wife couldn't be here because she's a little too pregnant to uh, make the trip, um, but it gave me the opportunity also to come out with my father, um, who I'm very excited to have here, um, and who's uh, a model for me in a lot of ways. So, um, uh, let me get started. <laughs> so, I don't need to, uh, to tell you that we're living in very turbulent times. Uh, every week it seems like something completely crazy is happening, particularly, unfortunately, from my part of the world. Uh, and uh, uh, there have been, in the United States, in the UK, around Europe, uh, referenda uh, uh, and elections that have surprised us all. Things are changing extremely rapidly. Uh, and this isn't new. It's been going on uh, probably since the beginning of time, but certainly in the last decade, things have been extremely complicated uh, since the financial crisis, which most economists uh, were caught unawares by. Uh, other events that political scientists didn't foresee, like the Arab Spring. It's been a very complicated time. Uh, and I think within social science and outside of social science, there's a bit of an erosion of confidence that we really know what we're doing and that we're able to make to be of any help uh, for policy or for improving the world. Uh, it's not just that there's turbulence, but it's also that things seem so incredibly unpredictable. Uh, and I think that it's unpredictable for, well, we don't even know exactly why it's unpredictable. Maybe it's unpredictable because history is just radically contingent. 
It's just one damn thing after another, and they're not connected to one another, and there's just no way of knowing what's going to happen next because there's nothing determined about what's going to happen next. Or maybe, alternatively, the world is proceeding in a more or less deterministic way, and we're heading, I don't know, to utopia or catastrophe or something. Uh, but unfortunately, we're not smart enough to know which it is, and so the social sciences aren't helping us there either. Um, I think that we have a bit of warranted skepticism about the degree to which we can understand the social world, and correspondingly, the degree to which we can improve the social world. I think that there are some grounds for pessimism about the utility of the social sciences, but I also think that there are grounds for optimism. Uh, there are certainly a lot of dead ends. There are a lot of obstacles. There are things that we've been promised that haven't come to pass. Lots of theories, lots of predictions that have turned out to be failures. But I also think that there are a lot of unexplored directions and uh, lots and lots of opportunities to improve the social sciences and for us to make advances. I think that in certain ways, it's, it's kind of trite to say that the social sciences are in their infancy. And compared to a lot of other sciences like physics, you know, you can say that for 100 years, 200 years. How long is it going to stay in its infancy? But I think that there actually is some reason to believe that at some point, maybe hopefully within our lifetimes, it might arrive at its adolescence or at least its late childhood. Uh, so there are lots of opportunities, I think. And another thing that I think is promising is that there's an increased recognition that what matters is social policy um, and institutional structure in improving the world. I think that for a little while, people hoped or thought that it might be... Um, that, that we might be saved by technology, or we might be saved by engineering. And I think increasingly, certainly over the last few years, it's pretty clear that there are as many complications that come with technology as there are solutions, and that a lot of our problems really are policy problems. So people are redoubling their efforts to try to understand what kinds of policy interventions uh, might make sense, how we might fix political systems. Now, um, there are lots of potential options for improving the social sciences, and today I just want to focus on one, um, and that is uh, for changes that I think are important in the field of social ontology. I think that social ontology in itself is a very interesting and foundational topic, and I'll define, I'll talk about what I mean by social ontology shortly. Uh, it is quite theoretical as a discipline, but there are also lots of practical applications to it. The field is one that has very ancient roots. Uh, it uh, arguably goes back to ancient Greece, maybe even to, uh, to the pre-Socratics, to the sophists who are interested in the nature of a lot of areas of the social world. But in a lot of ways, it remains very underexplored. Um, it's, the inquiries in certain ways have been uh, oddly limited, and I think that there are lots of opportunities for expanding it. So when I talk about social ontology, what do I mean? Uh, social ontology is the inquiry into the nature of the social world. And when I, we talk about the social world, well, that's a lot of different things. A uh, paradigmatic example of a social entity is a crowd, a crowd of people. And there's been lots of theory about crowds, um, especially since the late 19th century. Another example that a lot of philosophers talk about are things like jazz ensembles. It's a kind of social entity where people are interacting with one another in a very intimate way, uh, are, uh, have cognitive structures that overlap with one another. Another social entity is a marketplace. It involves people, but it's a little more heterogeneous than uh, simply a, 
uh, a crowd or a jazz ensemble. Uh, a corporation is another kind of example. Interestingly, it's a little bit difficult to take a picture of a corporation. I could take a picture of a crowd, but a corporation, <laughs> well, you know, that's the logo, but it's not the corporation. What exactly do you photograph? That's in itself kind of a signal that there's an interesting ontological problem there. A university might be similar to a corporation in some ways. Uh, a very different kind of entity is a piece of money, a dollar bill. It's a piece of paper. Um, so it's not made of people. It looks very different from a crowd, but nonetheless is social. A piece of property, a law, uh, other things that are uh, clearly social that a lot of people have been talking about recently are gender categories, which are socially constructed, and racial categories as well. So, in, um, the, so the basic topic of social ontology is to investigate, well, what exactly are these things? How are they built? So I'll talk mostly about this today, um, but uh, suggest some implications for the social sciences uh, in improving our understanding of them. Some of the aims of uh, the book, The Ant Trap, are to critique widespread assumptions about how the social world is built. And one of the things that I especially try to do, one of the particular aims, is that in many ways, even when we're not trying to, we understand the social world too individualistically too anthropocentrically. We think about the social world as basically being made up of people or as people plus some other stuff. And so one of the aims is to critique those assumptions. Another central aim of the book is to create a new framework for understanding how to approach social ontology. And so this is uh, the grounding and anchoring model. One of the centerpieces of the book, which um, I won't have a lot of time to talk about today, is this idea of anchoring, um, which is essentially a way of thinking about social construction. Okay. Um, another aim is to focus on a few very widely discussed cases, like thinking about group agents. What is it for uh, a group to have something like an attitude? Uh, what is it for a group to have an intention or for a group to take action? And uh, I try to set the stage for applications to models in the social sciences. Today, I really want to just talk about a part of this. I want to try to explain and motivate the idea of doing foundational work in social ontology. And the way I want to motivate it is by starting with an example of a simple and rather problematic model. Uh, it's uh, uh, now a little bit old, uh, James Coleman's 1990 model uh, for social explanation um, in his book, uh, Foundations of Social Theory. It's a little bit dated, uh, but it's extremely influential still, um, and there, it's, it's part of a, a, a project in thinking about how social explanation works that extends long before his work and still extends to today. And in particular, talking about it makes it is useful for clarifying what, why it's helpful to think about ontology. So um, what uh, Coleman does is he's talking about what it takes to construct a good social explanation. So if you just take two social events, and here I've picked a couple of events at random that have, are connected to one another. Um, so one uh, social, uh, social fact or social event uh, is, is Amazon being under pressure to expand its grocery distribution hubs. This is something about a corporation in its competitive environment. Um, and then that leads to a different kind of event, uh, Whole Foods uh, voting to approve an acquisition by Amazon. In case you're not familiar, Whole Foods is a grocery store, and Amazon, I hope you've heard of, it's a big <laughs> retailer online. So what Coleman does is he says, look, if we want to explain this kind of cause and effect relationship at what he indicates as the macroscopic level, then the best way of doing it, according to Coleman, is not to give this macro level explanation and leave it at that. 
what Coleman says is a good explanation actually needs to go down to the micro level, to the individualistic level. So it needs to go down from the top using arrow one to a micro, micro level and connect what's, what's happening at the macro level with something like Amazon's management attitudes, an individualistic description of what's happening between people and then talk about how that causally generates a different individualistic level thing, arrow two, and then aggregate that back up to uh, the macroscopic level in arrow three. So instead of having this horizontal, this horizontal explanation here, it goes uh, by way of this thing that occasionally it's called his boat diagram. I guess if you squint a bit, it looks like a boat. Um, so... Uh, it is an individualistic approach to explanation. It's not a very extreme form of individualism. Coleman thinks that uh, we don't have to neglect the fact that there are institutions in the background. It's uh, what you might call a form of institutional individualism, where you have an institutional environment, and then good explanations in the context of that need to be in terms of individuals. Now, when you look at this diagram, it's pretty clear what the horizontal arrows are supposed to be. They're causal arrows from one macro event to another macro event, from one micro event to another micro event. That much is reasonably clear. But it becomes really problematic if you start thinking about what exactly are these diagonal arrows supposed to be. And a lot of people have observed this problem. Are they supposed to be causal arrows? Are they supposed to be ontological arrows? What exactly is the relationship between the dot in the upper left and this dot down here? Oh, no, it's not working. There we go. So uh, is, is he saying that the social phenomena consist of what's going on down at that level? And what kind of dependence is supposed to be involved between these two? Why would you think, uh, for instance, that the arrow should be diagonal? One of the problems with this approach to explanation is that there's a failure to separate ontology from causation. There's a failure to separate uh, ontological questions, which ask, well, what are these events? What are these social phenomena or social facts? From causal questions, which say, well, how do things work? How does the sequence go from one to another to another? What are the relevant causal relations and or mechanisms? In connection with this problem, we can see that actually the, the, the dimensions of the diagram just don't make a lot of sense. So it's pretty clear that what's going on in, on the vertical dimension is something like the ontological level. But down on the horizontal dimension, it's not clear whether that's supposed to be something that's happening over time, whether that's a causal dimension, or whether it is uh, a, a temporal dimension, or what exactly this is supposed to be. Now, what some people have proposed that we can do is to try to square, these, uh, square this diagram. And uh, what we can do is we can say, well, what we're trying to do is talk about, at a given point in time, the ontological relations between things at the high level and things at the low level. And then you're looking over time at how things at the low level affect things at the same time at, as at the high level, and then affect things at the low level, again, on the other square corner of the diagram. But this isn't going to work as well. When we, if you think about it, it's very clear that the ontological building blocks of most social facts are not synchronic. They're not at exactly the same time as a social fact uh, obtains. That is, um, if, you, uh, if you think about the, the ontological building block blocks of something like Amazon being under pressure, that's not something that happens at an instant in time. It's a diachronic process. Right? If you think about the fact that 
Tomas is the winner of the 2015 Lakatos Prize. That doesn't depend on something that's going on now. It depends on diachronic facts. And so you can't have ontological relations that are fixed to one point in time. Basically, this diagram, the Coleman diagram, doesn't make sense. The idea of the horizontal dimension being a temporal or causal dimension, the vertical dimension being an ontological dimension, right? There isn't this horizontal vertical distinction. You might be able to make some sense if you twist it a lot, but it's extremely misleading. Now, once you try to work out what the ontology is of the social facts, which is going to be much more complicated than just identifying what happens among individuals at a given point in time, then you can start talking about causal relations. How we construct causal explanations is going to depend on the ontology that we, uh, that we develop, that we understand. Our causal explanations tacitly depend on our prior commitments about ontology. To some extent, you have to do the ontology first if you're then going to do good causal explanations. So the... Oh, sorry, I almost missed an important slide. Um, there's one more, even more important point. And that important point is that there's a fundamental problem with Coleman-style explanations and with a lot of social explanation. And that is, when we start taking a look at this diagram, we look at these complex ontological relations, and I'll be going in a moment into a couple of examples of ontological, uh, the ontological analysis of a social fact. And then when we look at all of the different causes and the causal relationships that are leading from one thing to another to another, the question is, why would you think, why would you possibly think that what's going on in this diagram is individualistic? Why would you think that the ontological building blocks of the social should be individual people? And even more so, why would you think that all of the causal factors that are affecting this process should be individual people? Why would you think that ontological explanation or causal explanation should fundamentally be anthropocentric? In order to clarify uh, how to go about things differently, um, I think we need to rethink how we do ontology. The motivation for investigating social ontology is partly the intrinsic interest of thinking about the nature of the social world, but it's much more than that. It's more than, uh, than, uh, the, the, it's more than only the analysis of social entities, but it is application to model building and explanation that really explains why we uh, want to do good ontology. If you think about it, other fields invest tremendous amounts of time and money and resources in thinking about ontology. Think, for instance, about biology, the fields of genomics, the fields of proteomics, connectome mapping, where people are mapping neural relationships. Sure, they're interested in how one thing causes another and causes another and causes another, but really what they're interested in, what the nature of the field is, is to understand what things are. You're understanding the ontological components of various parts of biological systems. In the social sciences, we spend almost no time. And if you do, I've done a similar study to what Tomas was talking about in terms of looking at what people do in the actual journals. And in social science journals, as com contrasted with natural science journals, social science journals spend almost no time on ontology. There's almost no investigation of the nature of social entities. How do we do this? How shall we approach inquiries into the nature of the social world? One of the key ideas that we need to understand in approaching the nature of the social world is the idea of ontological determination. So if we take a social fact, like the auditorium is full, and we'll just 
pretend. It's pretty close to full. <laughs> um, like the auditorium is full. Um, well, there is a relation between that and another fact, a fact that every seat in the auditorium is occupied. So there are lots of ways of understanding what exactly the relationship is between these two kinds of facts. One of them that I talk about in the book and that's getting a lot of attention in metaphysics these days is the idea of grounding. And the idea of grounding is that one set of facts serves as a metaphysically sufficient explanation for another fact. All you need to know in order to determine the fact that the auditorium is full is that every seat in the auditorium is occupied by a person. Now, that's an ontological relationship. It's not a causal relationship. The fact that every seat is occupied doesn't cause the fact that the auditorium is full. It is the fact that the auditorium is full. That's the idea of the grounding relation. Okay. So when we're looking at social facts, one of the main things that we need to do is to try to understand what grounds various kinds of social facts. And I just want to go through one, again, fairly randomly uh, deciding, uh, one fairly randomly chosen example. Uh, I actually meant the, uh, the uh, Whole Foods stockholder group. Changed my example in midstream. Um, so one, one, one randomly chosen example is this, that Whole Foods votes to approve this uh, acquisition. So there are some obvious things that are ontological grounds of a vote by the Whole, Food, Whole Foods shareholder group. And those involve things like voting, like raising your hand, or uh, mailing in a proxy. Right? Those are things that individuals do. But there are lots of other facts that also figure into it. I think that when the first thing that we need to do in trying to understand the ontology of the social world is to try to aim for comprehensiveness. So before we start modeling, when we're trying to understand what's causing what in the social world, when we're building our models in economics or we're building our models in sociology, the first step is to try to understand, well, what are the ontological determinants that we're trying to model? And we find that actually there's a very heterogeneous group of them, that it's not enough just to have people, person A through Z, mailing in their proxies or raising their hands. There's also facts about that these people constitute the stockholder group. And there's also facts about who owns what percentages, because the aggregation procedures, which also figure into determining the outcome of the vote, figure into the grounding of it. Now, if we can still go further, we can see that we can break these, these grounds down into more detail. And there we start to find that the grounds of this vote turn out to be extremely heterogeneous. Think about what grounds the fact that these, well, 26 people constitute the Whole Foods uh, stockholders. Those are a variety of facts that involve things about the physical world, that involve things about history, that involve things about contracts and decisions, historical agreements and sales and purchases and votes and, uh, and things about the United States, the corporate code and judicial precedents and so on. So there are very heterogeneous grounds that go into determining even a fairly simple kind of social fact. And the dependencies start to proliferate. Almost all of the social facts end up having much more complicated grounds than one would imagine. So there are all of these. This is still all simply trying to cash out the building blocks or the ontology of what seems like a very simple social fact. Now, once you're done with all of that, then it's time to think about the causal structure. And causal structures are super complicated also, right? But the point is that causal models are going to be built atop ontological structures. Now, it's fine to say, okay, well, things are very complicated. Obviously, we know the social world is super complicated. 
And the question is, what do we do? How do we deal with this kind of complexity? The first thing that I want to note is people have overlooked the fact that ontological complexity is as pervasive as causal complexity. And that understanding the ontology and untangling the, and untangling the ontology is as important as, understanding, as untangling causes. So complex structures like this are everywhere, and it's very misleading to start with a shoddy ontology. It matters to get the ontology right, and it also matters that we include the heterogeneity in building our models. That does not mean that I think simple models are bad. Simple models are extremely valuable, and once you understand the complexity, that puts you in a position to start developing new kinds of simple models. What I am arguing against is the fact that our models all look the same as one another. They're all very anthropocentric, individual-centric. When we try to build game-theoretic models, we tend to be extremely individualistic. When we try to build social network models, they're very individualistic. And better models in the social sciences are going to start by understanding that ontological structures are more heterogeneous and causal structures are much more heterogeneous as well. Now, Everything that I've talked about now, I, I have to say, is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to social ontology than this, just these messy arrow, arrow diagrams. Um, and I just want to mention this one thing that is part of a very important part of the book, but that isn't as important for the key message, which is about the centrality of ontology. Um, and that is, uh, if you're interested in going into social ontology, there really are two very different kinds of disciplines, and we need to separate them from one another. So I want to at least mention this. So the question that I've been talking about uh, in this talk is about grounding, is if you take a social fact, what other kinds of facts ontologically determine or ground the fact that this social fact uh, obtains? There's a whole other kind of question, though, and that is, well, we have a set of social categories. We have uh, corporations, corporate votes, stockholders. Um, we have, um, well, uh, as I mentioned early on, we have money and races and genders and all kinds of social categories. And there's a whole other question in social ontology, which is not a question of grounding, and that is a question of, well, how do we set up these categories? What makes these the grounds for being a stockholder vote? What makes these the grounds for being a stockholder group? And what makes these the grounds for being a, a C-type corporation? None of those would be explored in an account of, well, what, what grounds facts about the uh, stockholder group? But there, it's a very important question. You might think about this, um, and this is uh, what I've labeled the theory of anchoring. This is essentially a theory of how we socially construct the categories that we do. Okay? So there are fundamentally these two different parts of the field of social ontology. I think both of them can be relevant to modeling, but the grounding inquiry is really a central one for improving the way that we think about doing our models. So uh, to take stock... The field of social ontology is a very rich field. Here I've only talked about a little bit of it, um, but when I said at the beginning that there were a lot of opportunities, uh, I think that uh, part of it is that, um, that uh, there's just so much available in social ontology. There's been so little good work that's been done so far, and there are so many different ways of making quick advances in understanding the nature of the social world that clearly... In that, in that area alone, there are tremendous unexplored terrains and opportunities. Okay. Um, even what I've talked about today also reveals opportunities in improving social models. 
when we recognize that social entities are extremely heterogeneous. Uh, what it does is it, it uh, gives us particular ideas of concrete projects that we can pursue and, uh, and synthesize the ways that improving the ontology can improve modeling. So there are very far-reaching implications, I think, in a number of different ways for expanding how we model, our qualitative models, our analytic models, and our computational models. A lot of this, I think, is just a matter of picking some low-hanging fruit, some things where the ontology is clearly wrong, where these kinds of individualistic ontologies are serving us very poorly. One of the areas that I think is extremely obvious is thinking about social institutions, which uh, have to this point, largely been modeled in terms of individuals' cognitive states, where you think about, well, uh, their uh, institutions are, are a kind of rule or a kind of convention or a kind of equilibrium. And this is very different, I think, from what you get if you start thinking about uh, uh, institutions from a clearer ontological perspective. So obviously, all of this is a far cry to saying, well, uh, we're going to improve our ontology, and thereby we're going to improve the social world. But I do want to stress that there are lots of different kinds of projects for social improvement. Some of the near-term ones, near ones are presumably being activists of various kinds. But over the longer term, I think this foundational work uh, offers a tremendous amount of promise for really rethinking the kinds of social models that we construct. Thanks. Stay there. Yeah. Answer questions. Uh, we certainly have some time for questions, so let me open the door. Uh, hello, I, I really enjoyed your talk. I, I was wondering uh, when you draw the diagram, when you're grounding things, then the grounds have grounds, then presumably potentially those grounds might have grounds. So, how do you decide uh, when to stop and what kind of thing appears on the sort of bottom of the, of the, of the projector screen, I, I suppose? So, uh, yeah. Um, t is this working? Is this, this label mic working? Yeah, okay. Um, so uh, that's an excellent question. The, to some extent, if I, have, uh, if I have a full ground, a full set of grounds, and I can turn back to the slide, uh, if I can figure out how to do it. Um, if I have a full set of grounds... Uh, then in a sense I'm all done. I don't need to go any further because this is, this is all fully grounding this fact. I've given a complete metaphysical explanation for what makes this fact obtain. But a lot of the time we don't really know how to model this fact and we might be misunderstanding what goes into this fact, what determines this fact, and so we can go down to another level. And this is, so to some extent, this is redundant. We could actually cut out this step here and then all of these arrows going up here would also be full grounds. Okay? Now, it's often perspicuous. And the answer is it's a matter of art, not a matter of science. Are we ever going to be able to get to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom? Well, not in social science. And I don't think that there's... It's not clear to me uh, that... that uh, first of all, it's not clear to me that it's that helpful. It's not clear to me that there is uh, a, an ultimate foundation to any of this. Um, but it's not, again, it's not necessary. What we really need to do is to, uh, to try to aim for comprehensiveness and continue to work out the structures until you find points. Look, it's still possible, of course. We all know that Coleman was too extreme. You can have perfectly good explanations that just are at the, reside at the macro level entirely. So to say all, all good explanations have to be at some reductive level, well, that's just a mistake as well. 
right? But what we want to do, I think, is pick levels that are going to be useful for modeling. And that is going to depend on our modeling purposes. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I don't have lots of ideas about social ontology, but I'm a metaphysician, and I'm wondering about your understanding of grounding. Uh -huh. um, so I think it's a very smart move to distinguish between causal and ontological relations, so that's all fine. But grounding is very neutral as a concept. So, and I mean, you want to make this point, we need to move away somehow from individualistic um, ways of thinking about social institutions. So, but First, I'm not convinced that the mere fact of heterogeneity in, in the grounding level alone gives you a non-individualistic approach. So a non-individualistic approach. Uh -huh. So I'm not quite sure what you exactly have in mind there. And then, well, maybe you can say a bit more about how actually then social institutions, if they're not meant to just be reducible to individualistic um, matters of fact, how they actually exist then in a metaphysical space. So are they emergent entities or do they supervene on individualistic uh, facts or what is it? And one question I had in that connection was because you sometimes switched in your terminology between individualistic and anthropocentric and I was wondering what you have in mind there. Is it, I mean, that's not necessarily the same. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Uh, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> so um, let me talk a bit about individualism. So in terms of, um, of grounding, uh, I, think that there are some, I think that there are lots of ways of, of understanding metaphysical determination relations. And uh, one of the ways that was the dominant way for a while was to talk about supervenience. And I talk about supervenience a lot in the book. I think that um, for a very long time, people thought that the way to understand the relation between social things and, uh, and individualistic things was in terms of supervenience. And it's actually very helpful because it, it helps you disaggregate a bunch of different kinds of relations that might hold. But, um, but there, there are kind of well-known shortcomings of supervenience as a determination relation. Um, and so I think there are lots of advantages uh, from a metaphysics perspective for, for thinking about ontological determination in terms of grounding. It turn, I think it's, it's a powerful tool in some ways. Um, but the, the question about individualism doesn't really flow at all from the question about grounding. Uh, when you argue that social facts are not grounded individualistically, the exact same point could be made in saying that the exact same point that I'm making is that social facts don't supervene on individualistic facts. Now, a lot of, there's been a lot of versions of individualism about ontology in social sciences. A lot of people think, well, once you, the idea of individualism in ontology is, well, once you fix the facts about individuals and between individuals, then you fixed all the social facts. That's sort of the supervenience idea. And uh, the question that you have to ask yourself if, if you want to advocate that view is, well, what do you mean by individualistic facts? What is the relation supposed to be between, uh, what, is, what is this set of facts upon which the social facts are supposed to be determined or are supposed to supervene? When you start thinking about it, um, it turns out that uh, if you look historically, people used to understand individualistic facts extremely narrowly. They thought about cognitive states. And so they were basically trying to say, well, the social world is exhaustively determined by the mental states of people in the population. But that becomes pretty obvious that that can't possibly be right. 
because this university doesn't depend on mental states for our, its existence. It's more than just mental states, right? Or a corporation is more than just mental states or bodily actions. Are, so what happened is that people started expanding. They started creating epicycles. They started expanding the onion. And they started saying, well, actually, I don't just mean mental states. I mean, it's, the social is determined by people and their bodies. Well, it's not just that. It's people in their bodies and their actions. Well, not just that. It's people in their bodies and their actions and their resources or commodity bundles. Oh, well, not just that. It's also their practices. <laughs> and so you start expanding and expanding and expanding, and you start to wonder, well, what is it that this thesis was supposed to be in the first place? And now I can just give you a simple example to show you that however broad, however big this onion is, it's never going to be big enough. Here's an example. Suppose that I write a contract with you, okay? And I say, um, I'm going to pay you $1,000 if a certain event transpires, okay? So I will owe you, I will have a liability, a social a, a liability, in case there is a hurricane in the South Pacific, right? Is that hurricane a non-individualistic fact? Well, the fact about my liability is a social fact. And what about that hurricane? Was that supposed to be individualistic? What's happened is that you can, if you, if you, People have really modeled social sciences and the dependence of the social sciences on individual people. But the fact is, social facts depend on everything, environmentally, physically. If you're going to make individuals and make sense, you have to expand it so broad that it's merely physicalism. And then why, didn't, why did we call it individualism in the first place? That's basically one of the things that makes... This is the point about heterogeneity, and this is why individualism is such a failure to begin with. Thank you. I think I saw two hands on the far wall. Yes, that's two of you. Right. Um, so I want to go back to the previous slide where I had example. The auditorium it's for is grounded by the fact that pretty much every seat is taken by a person. That yep. seems to me just to be an analytical truth. That's the very definition of the auditorium it's for, right? Whereas if you go to the actual diagram you're trying to pinpoint, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. For example, the physical fact that some shareholders um, casted the vote in a certain way, that can also be grounded, for example, by the you know, neurological movement in the brain, the physical, how that determined the physical act of casting the, uh, the, the vote. So in that sense, if you really want to do a full grounding in the metaphysical level, you, I mean, I'm assuming you do not wish to actually go down that far, right? So. Okay, so um, one, one point, so you're absolutely right. The auditorium example, uh, to, to make it a slightly clearer example of grounding, I could, it's, it's, you're right that the way that I cast it was almost an, like an analysis. But grounds don't have to be unique, and they don't have to be an analysis. For instance, the complete grounds that, um, that uh, the auditorium is full is that Alice is sitting in this seat, and Bob is sitting in this seat, and Carol is sitting in this seat, and Douglas is sitting in this seat. And those are not an analysis of the auditorium being full. What they are is a metaphysically sufficient explanation. So you're right that what I basically did is I gave you kind of a metaphysically necessary and sufficient explanation, but that necessary part, to some extent, could have been misleading. Any metaphysically sufficient explanation is going to be the complete grounds. Okay? So... Um, and so you're right that um, there also are lots of ways that you can keep going down levels, but you can get metaphysically sufficient conditions at just a, a particular intermediate level. Right? You don't have to go down to the neural level 
in order to give a metaphysically sufficient explanation of the fact that Alice is sitting in this seat. Okay, does that help? Good. Let's take the next and last question. Yeah, so I very much agree that social ontology is important, but I wanted to ask you to what extent we really need to always unpack the ontological grounds of social facts in order to explain social regularities, even causally explain social regularities in the social sciences. So take something like the laws of supply and demand um, in relation to um, money or prices in, in economics. So the price of a good goes up as the uh, demand goes up or as the supply goes down, that kind of regularity is present irrespective of whether we are looking at an agricultural economy where money is, um, uh, takes the form of gold coins or um, a prison economy where money takes the form of cigarettes or a um, very modern you know, virtual internet economy where money uh, takes uh, a purely electronic and virtual form. We get the same regularity across all of these different cases. Now, I'm not denying that it is interesting to ask uh, you know, what, what is the grounds of these social facts about money in each of these cases, but the social scientist, the economist, can often abstract away from some of those ontological details and just look at the regularity at a sort of more abstract, coarse-grained, functional level. I, I absolutely agree. It really depends on the problem again. Uh, I think that what's happened, though, is that we've gotten very, very good at modeling a certain kind of problem. So I absolutely agree with you that the kinds of problems that are the great victories for a certain kind of individualistic approach and, frankly, psychologistic approach to economics those are the things that that, that approach works very well for. We have a hammer, it's a very powerful hammer, and it applies to nails, right? But there are lots of other kinds of things that need to be done in explaining the social world, and there are lots of failures. And the, kind, the reason I mentioned institutions is that I think it's one place where I see an enormous amount of interest, rightly so, uh, uh, thinking about, about the nature of institutions and the role of institutions, how to build them, how to make them succeed, how to make them improve social conditions, that's something that a lot of people are very concerned with. But there, I'm extremely skeptical that we're going to make any headway at all if we continue to think about them largely in terms of rules and uh, equilibria among different strategic choices. That's not what institutions largely are. They're largely... Uh, hi hybrid heterogeneous artifacts that we put in the social world in order to transform one kind of situation into another kind of situation. And the nature of that artifact is absolutely essential for understanding how those kinds of transformations can occur. So there are certain kinds of problems where I absolutely agree with you that all this kind of detail and fretting about, am I doing the ontology right or wrong? Well, that's going to be misplaced. But I think that, that and, and I, I wouldn't diagnose every failure of the social sciences as being a failure of ontology. But I do think that the failures of understanding the nature of the social world are much more pervasive than we would, than we would be likely to admit. And that there's different kinds of problems that we'll be able to crack by trying to introduce certain kinds of new ontological tools. Again, I think it's, it's going to be a matter of exploration. To some extent, I'm hoping that this is, you know, among, 
uh, a group of budding social scientists that this is a kind of call to action, at least not to ignore the ontological complexity, because I think that new methodologies are clearly needed. But what's not, what's not clearly needed is more tweaks to, well, are people rational or are, not they, are they not quite rational? That's a minor tweak to, to work that's been going on for, you know, generations. And what we really need is much more systemic change in thinking about how we're building our models. Thank you. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thank you again, Brian. Thank you, Thomas, for two wonderful lectures. I'm sorry we couldn't fit in all the questions, but that gives me uh, the perfect occasion to mention that tomorrow we have workshops on both of these books, uh, and uh, there'll be other speakers commenting and discussion. Uh, so at 10 o'clock, we start with workshop um, on Thomas Prader's book. At 2 o'clock, we have Brian Epstein's workshop. If you want to see further details, please go to the website of the LSE Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Methods, and you will also be able to register. So now it just remains for me to invite all of you to the reception uh, where we will be presenting the medals and thanking some people. Um, I'm told you just go out and go to the left. Is it up? Different rooms, different rooms. The atrium is where we're going. If you're confused, please get help from our very kind stewards. Thank you uh, for all your work today. Thank you all for being here, and we'll see you momentarily.